if you were to go online and do a quick search for books that have been written on God's will on that topic, you would find a virtually endless list that could occupy all your days of reading until the day you die. Desiring God, God's will, longing for God's will, pursuing God's will, discerning God's will, God's will, just endless numbers of books written on this very topic. And of course, that makes sense because as Christians, we're quite concerned about whether or not we are living our life in accordance with God's will. We want to do that, don't we? The longer I've been a Christian, though, and the more I've studied the scriptures, I've begun to wonder whether we have made that topic a little too mysterious, a little more confusing than it needs to be. Question is, can we, broadly speaking, discern God's will? Can we have confidence that the way that we're living is in accordance with God's will? I think the answer to that question is a very confident yes. We absolutely can know that. Our text today is going to help us think about that topic a little bit. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to finish up this book today. Prepare for next week when we're going to start, you guessed it, 2 Thessalonians. Now, we've been in chapter 5 for three weeks now, and you might recall that two weeks ago we discussed this, this day of the Lord, this day in the future that is a day of judgment within which Jesus will return, and it's a day that we as believers are supposed to be constantly living in anticipation of, constantly prepared for. And then last week, as Paul in the letter turned towards the, the quality of life and the dynamic of Christian community, we discussed what it looks like to love one another. What does love lived out look like in community? Now, as we come to the close of chapter 5, Paul is going to run through a series of exhortations, all of it still focused on being God's people together. So we're going to pick it up in verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There we have it, mystery solved. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is letting these Thessalonians know that, that generally speaking, God's will for his people, God's will for them as a people of God and as a church is that they would be a people who are always rejoicing, that they're never ceasing in prayer, and that they are giving thanks in everything. Now, I know that when we think about God's will, especially when we go to buy a book on God's will or something like that, I know that usually what's driving that is a desire to have clarity about a particular decision we need to make about a particular circumstance in our life, say a job that we're thinking about taking or a relationship that we want to pursue, something like that. I understand that. And that's good because God cares about all of those minute details. But we can't let our concern and some of the mystery about the specific instances in our life and pursuing God's will in those distract us from the fact that God has generally made his will abundantly clear. 
He has let us know precisely the type of life he has called us into. There's no great mystery about it. In fact, a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 4, Jeff talked about God's will. And there Paul says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then specifically he goes on to talk about living sexually pure lives. And then here again in chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear. This community, this church, the people of God, if they are living according to God's will, would be a people always rejoicing, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in everything. So they sound rather important, so we better talk about them in the specifics here. So what's it mean to rejoice always? If you're like me, you might think about someone that is just always cheerful and bouncing around and they're just kind of a cheerleader in life. And if you're also like me and that's not really your temperament, you might get a little nervous about that. You say, I don't know if I can do that. But we need to remember that rejoicing is an action. Rejoicing is an action, and it flows from the state of being joyful. It flows from the state of being joyful, being filled with joy. It's important that we don't think too much only about the action and the form that takes, because, of course, for each one of us, rejoicing is going to take a different form. But the important thing for us to think about is whether or not the state, the quality, is something that marks us as people, marks our very character. See, it's the character, this inward state of joy that results in all these different expressions of rejoicing that is a beautiful thing to see among God's people. But Paul says he wants them to be marked by this, that joy would be a constant mark of their life. And because it is a constant mark of their life, they therefore will always rejoice. Now, joy, of course, is different than happiness. I need to clarify that. The best definition I've ever heard of joy is that joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Pervasive. It permeates everything. It's all over your life. It makes up just every little inch of you is filled with it. It just oozes over everything. Pervasive sense of well-being. That's the sense that it is well with me. In fact, that classic old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written in the middle of a, an abundance of tragedy. But it's a statement of joy because even when sorrows like sea billows roll, we can say it is well with my soul because we have a God who cares for us. We have a God who has abundantly provided for us. We have a God that saved us from sin and death and therefore we can be people marked with joy. And in fact, if we are lacking joy, a great step in order to pursue it isn't to try harder to be joyful, but it's to turn to God and reflect on who he is. Reflect on what he has done in your life. Reflect on his very character. There's no one more joyful than God. So turning to him, we can learn to live in the very joy that he himself has. So to rejoice doesn't mean that you're always running around, constantly shouting, giving high fives to everyone. That's not what rejoicing is. No, it's a, it's a state of being joyful. It's a mark of your very character and God's will for his people, for you and for me, for these Thessalonians, is that we would be an always rejoicing people 
because we would be grounded and our character would be marked by joy, by this pervasive sense of well-being. Always rejoicing. In the same way, they are to pray without ceasing. Now, if you're like me, you may have wrestled with this text before because you think, how am I supposed to do that? Do I just stay home all day, right? Jesus says to pray in your closet. Should I just stay in my closet 24-7? Is that what it means? One commentator said this. He said, praying without ceasing is psychologically impossible. You can't pray while you sleep. So what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, in just the same way that when he says we are supposed to always rejoice and it's a statement of a character of life, kind of the tone of your life, to pray without ceasing means that you are a person marked by prayerfulness. You're a person for whom prayer is a quick inclination. It might be your first response, something that you're just kind of constantly turning to, turning your life to God, lifting up your thoughts, your concerns, your joys to him, turning to him in prayer. See, I think for us, so often, at least it's true of myself, that often it seems like prayer is often maybe a second thought for me. So often I'll try to fix something on my own or I'll try to resolve it on my own and then that will fall flat and I'll think, oh, I need to pray about that. It should be where I start. Paul's talking about becoming a people for whom it is the constant state of our character that we are just prayerful people. There's an old joke, it's a kind of a, pastor's joke. We pastors like it, but a pastor goes to visit a woman from his congregation who's in the hospital for a very kind of routine surgery, nothing traumatic or tragic going on. But after visiting with her for a few minutes, he then goes out to the waiting room and talks to her husband. And after just kind of chatting for a few moments, he says, well, we should pray. And her husband says, oh no, is it that serious? It's so serious that we should pray about it. Often we think of prayer that way. Only pray when it's really serious. Now we want to be a people constantly turning to God, constantly lifting up the things that concern us, constantly interacting with him about those things. That is his will for us as a people. Finally, then he says that we are to give thanks in everything. It's important here that we Pay attention to the prepositions. Remember, Paul didn't say, give thanks for everything. He says, give thanks in everything. That distinction is really important because we all need to acknowledge that there are things that happen in our world that are just tragic and horrible and they are the result of sin and they are not things that we need to be thankful for. However, in the midst of them, We have a God that is always working. Therefore, we can be in a circumstance and not be thankful for that circumstance, but we can be thankful in the midst of that circumstance. Thankful in everything. It was back in 2019 that my father died of a disease. It's called pulmonary fibrosis. It's a horrific disease. No known cause, no good treatments, no known cure. He suffered with it for quite some time, but the end came quite quickly and really caught all of us off guard. And I can just say that I have never felt grief like that in my entire life. If you have lost someone 
close to you, a sibling or a child, a parent, it is just, well, it's, it's just grief that just fills your entire world. It's hard to even think straight. Before he passed away, he passed away in early January, but before that, we were able as a family to go down for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary and go celebrate at Disney World together. And it was an incredible time. And I can tell you, I am so thankful for that time. I'm so thankful for those memories. I'm so thankful for that trip. It was an amazing time. When he was in the hospital, it was during my birthday. And actually on that day, some of his numbers seemed to improve. And you know what? I am thankful for that. It was such an encouragement. We went out to dinner that night, my, our wives and my brothers and, and my mother, and we were just, we were, we were so happy. We thought, okay, I think we're turning a corner. And I am thankful for that little glimpse of hope. I'm thankful for that. Before he passed away, I was able to say to him, despite the fact that he was sedated, I was able to say to him all the things I appreciated about him, how much I loved him, and I'm so thankful for that opportunity. But I am not thankful for pulmonary fibrosis. I am not thankful for the fact that my dad passed away. I'm not thankful for those things. See, those are the result of sin and the chaos and the brokenness that entered the world because of sin. And we have a God who hates sin. He hates it. I don't need to be thankful for those things, but I am thankful in the midst of those things. I'm thankful in the midst of them because I have a God and we have a God who meets us in the midst of our circumstances. As difficult as they are, he meets us right in the midst of them and he is good. And he promises to be with us. He promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He promises that he can work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I am thankful in the midst of horrible circumstances. I'm not thankful for those circumstances. We can be thankful because we have a God that no matter what we are going through, he provides us with the opportunity because of who he is to be thankful. In a general sense, I think we can say that God's will for his people is not some unsearchable mystery. We can say pretty clearly he made it really clear. Essentially, it's to live the life that he has called us to, to step into the fullness of life that he's made available to us. He has set us free from the power of sin and death. He has put us on a path that is good and right. And now his will for us is that we would walk in it. Specifically, Paul says here, it's that we would be a people rejoicing always, praying without ceasing. That'd be a mark of our lives. And that we'd be a people thankful in everything. That was to mark the Thessalonians. That's to mark the people of God. That's to mark us as a church collectively. But of course, it's important that we remember that, that as a church, we're a collection of individuals, right? Linked together by the very spirit of Christ. And so what will be true of the community has to necessarily be true of the individuals. So for me, it's a good opportunity to step back and say, Lord, how do I continue to grow in joy? 
How do I continue to grow in, in an eagerness to pray? How do I continue to grow in being thankful in everything? And as we are doing that, all of us together in our life with Christ, that will become a mark, a characteristic of our community. And that would be an incredible thing. It's exactly what we hope for. That is God's will for us. As Paul continues in verse 19, he addresses another matter that pertains to God's desire for his people as well. He says, do not quench the spirit. Now he's referring here to God's Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity, not our individual spirit. You know, when you look at scripture, it's interesting that often when God arrives on the scene, when he appears to people, often that appearance is accompanied by fire. Maybe your mind draws up a few images immediately. One that comes to mind for me is Moses in the wilderness. You know, he's herding his sheep. He's out there in the middle of nowhere. And then suddenly he comes across a, a bush that is burning yet not consumed. And he learns that is holy ground. God is present. And then a little bit later, as Israel is leaving Egypt and they're beginning this journey through the wilderness, God guides them by a cloud, yes, during the day, but at night by a pillar of fire. And then when we turn the pages to the New Testament, that powerful image in Acts on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls upon his people and appears as tongues of fire. Often when God appears, he appears accompanied by fire. And the reason that's so interesting to me is because that word quench that we read in verse 19 is the same word that would be used to talk about extinguishing a fire, to put out a fire. In fact, some of your translations might say, do not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. Do not extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit, the work that he is doing in your very midst. That's the general statement, the general admonition that Paul makes. What's he talking about? He's gonna clarify it in verse 20. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. So generally, do not quench the spirit. Specifically, do not despise prophetic utterances. He's encouraging these Thessalonians not to look down upon, not to even go so far as to stop these things that he calls prophetic utterances. So what are those? What are prophetic utterances? Got to think about the context of this first century church. You know, these gatherings of believers that were now kind of gathering all throughout the, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, you know, they were a people of God's own possession, in alignment with what God had done historically, but they were a new type of people. There was a fresh thing that God was doing. Of course, they had the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures to guide their, their living, to guide and instruct them. But we all know that once we turn the page and we have people who now live in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, that, that now we're talking about a new covenant people, a fresh expression, that God is doing something different. These are people now focused on the very person of Jesus, not on what was happening in Jerusalem. These are people who live in light of the cross. And so the question is, for these new covenant people, where would instruction in how they are to live as new covenant people come from? 
And of course, the first answer is through the apostles' teaching. And that's why it's so important that Paul and Timothy and Titus visited them and that Peter wrote letters and James wrote letters. That's instruction for these early communities of faith. But we have to keep in mind also that God was doing something fresh and it's very clear that he was using these prophetic utterances, these words spoken by individuals in their community, but inspired by the spirit of God in order to help these New Testament communities know how to live, know what it looks like to follow after Jesus. They didn't have the authoritative New Testament like we do. And so God was doing something unique. He was doing something powerful. And God clearly used these prophetic utterances as a means of communicating to his people. Now, of course, as we all know, maybe you experience this in life group. You know, sometimes what you experience when you're talking with other believers is that we have different perspectives on something that maybe God has even said in his written authoritative word. And so you can imagine it gets a little more messy if we're talking about God's individual communication through people because people are fallible and people can mishear, they can misunderstand. And in response to that possibility, it appears that the Thessalonians had decided, let's just shut that down altogether. These prophetic utterances, they're a little too unruly, a little too chaotic, and so let's just stop those. But Paul makes it clear to stop those utterances, to, to turn those off or to deny their legitimacy would be to muffle the Holy Spirit himself. And that's something that, of course, that community was not supposed to do. So what are they to do? Verse 21, he clarifies for them. He says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Examine, test everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good or that which leads to good and reject or abstain from that which is evil or lead to evil. They were to test the veracity, the accuracy of these words that were coming through individuals, these prophetic utterances. It's very clear the fact that Paul says test them means that some of them might not have been motivated or inspired from the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, the Thessalonians were right to be somewhat cautious, but Paul is making it very clear that to cut out those words altogether would be to stifle the Spirit's communication to that body of believers. This is really something that I think happens throughout the history of the church. When it comes to matters of the Holy Spirit, it seems like we struggle to know exactly how to respond. Sometimes we err on going to this extreme or maybe the other extreme in terms of how we respond. Now we need to acknowledge the Holy Spirit and the life of the Holy Spirit among us is absolutely critical for us as believers. If you are a child of God, if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you have placed your faith in him, he has sent his spirit to you. He has filled you with his Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you into truth to instruct you in what is right, to gradually transform you into the very likeness of Jesus Christ himself. We are people that are in the spirit. The New Testament 
The, I'm sorry, the Christian community, our Christian community is life by the Spirit, in the Spirit, led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. But it is true that communities throughout time have struggled to know what to do with the Holy Spirit and with his doing unique things among his people. It's because of our inability to discern the Spirit's voice perfectly because we are fallible that he gives us one another. So critical that we be engaged in community. That's one of the things that God intends that we have in order to clearly decide whether or not something is prompted by the Spirit or not. And that's why we should examine, why we should test to discern the Spirit's prompting. Now, churches throughout history and up to this present day have decided, you know what, that's just too complicated. Let's just shut that down. And that is to err on one side, just to turn a blind eye and assume there's no need for the Spirit to be speaking. Now, we long to have the Spirit speak and guide and lead us individually, lead us together as a community. To shut it off would be to step outside what God intends for us. God's will for us as a people, individually, collectively, is that we be a people attentive to his spirit working among us. We want to be attentive to it. Now, of course, it's possible to err on the other side too. It's possible to start to believe that every single little idea I have, every little musing I have, every little impulse I have is prompted by the Spirit of God and therefore has to be listened to. It's infallible. No one can question it. I have known people for whom the statement might come out of their mouth, now God told me this. And what they mean by that is that I shouldn't question it. I shouldn't say, are you sure that's true? As people, as, as God's people in community, we should be justified in saying, you know what, that might be true, but can we examine that for a moment? Can we look at that? Can we inspect that? We really want to discern, is that really God speaking? It's a bit of a ridiculous illustration, but I had a friend in college that was a little inclined to saying this type of thing. And he was a computer science major, and uh, he didn't like to study. So right before a test, his prayer life just went through the roof, you know? You know how it is. And as a computer science major, he'd have to go into these computer labs. College students are used to be things called computer labs. You know, we all didn't have computers. And so he would go into these computer labs. And one day he walked in to do an exam and he just happened to sit down in the seat of another student who forgot to log off. So all of this student's work was right there. And my friend Andrew said, Ryan, it's amazing. The Holy Spirit gave me this gift. I even had goosebumps, which of course is a sure indication. Now we as his friends, of course, quickly said to him, Andrew, God's spirit does not lead us to cheat. Okay? But that's to err on the other side. To begin to believe that every single thought I have, every mood I have, every inclination I have must be a prompting of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to err on that side either. We want to be people who in community examine and test the spirit to discern whether or not this actually is a prompting by God himself. And if it is, we want to listen. We want to follow it. A good way to think about these individual promptings 
And a good way to think about testing these things, I have found, is to to really run through three questions. If I have something that I believe God has led me to, the very first question I should ask myself is, does this align with God's revealed word, which is his will? He has given us the Old and New Testaments. They are his authoritative word, and God's spirit will never speak in contradiction to his word, ever. If it does, if I feel a prompting and I say, I really feel God leading me to do this, and it is a step into the direction of disobedience, I can be assured it is not from God. I can be assured of that. Second question I can ask myself is whether or not this prompting would lead towards that which is good or will it lead towards that which is evil? Now, of course, it's important on that, that we are defining good and defining evil according to what God defines as good and evil. So even this test is really one that should drive us back into God's word, that we might know what he says is good, that we might discern whether or not this step I'm thinking about taking would lead towards the flourishing and the goodness that God intends and that he's revealed in his word. The final step requires community. Do I have believers in my life, people who I trust, people of character that I can talk to about something that I believe God is prompting in me and I can ask them, will you help me discern, is this really in alignment with what God would want? Can you help me discern, is this from the spirit of God? Because God speaks through his word and God confirms and speaks through his community. Three easy steps we can take because we want to be a people that are attentive to God's spirit, but are also examining, testing these promptings so that we might know together that we are going the direction that God intends for us. So God's granted us his Holy Spirit. He wants us to be a people attentive to that spirit. We don't want to quench the spirit. And so in a summary fashion, in this passage... God's will is is quite evident, it's quite clear that to live according to God's will as God's people is to live as a rejoicing always kind of people, filled with joy, a praying without ceasing kind of people, quick to turn and interact with our God, and a giving thanks in everything kind of people, and finally a people attentive to his very spirit working in our midst. That's who we want to be. That is the character that we want to mark our gatherings and our community. Now, as we turn to verse 23, Paul begins kind of what is a standard close to his letters. So we're going to roll through these verses rather quickly. He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Of course, to be sanctified is just to be set apart for God and for his purposes. It is to be made holy. It is, in our language, to become more like Jesus. That is God's will. It's what he longs for for us and what he intends to do in us. May he sanctify us entirely, sanctify you entirely. And continuing in verse 23, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Paul names these parts of the human being, spirit, soul, body. Some people debate endlessly on whether these are the definitive statements about what make up the human being, but I think that is really kind of getting lost in the details. The point is that Paul is just saying, may God sanctify you entirely, every part of you, 
your spiritual side, which is very real, and your physical side. God has given us bodies, and may all of you be sanctified entirely. And he is confident that God will do it because, verse 24, Paul says, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. We can count on it. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, this was just an affectionate greeting that was very common in that day and age. The Nebraska translation or equivalent might be a firm handshake, a side hug, whatever you're comfortable with. When I lived in Spain, we did have to greet people with a holy kiss, not a holy kiss, just a kiss. And it was, it was slightly awkward, slightly awkward. But he's talking about just this genuine familial community that we're supposed to step into as his people. Verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And finally, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's that verse that I want to dwell on for just a moment as we finish. It's one that I think we're we're kind of tempted to run right over because it seems so routine and we kind of know what that means or at least we think we do. But before we do that, let's step back for a second and think about this book as a whole as we close this series in 1 Thessalonians. Throughout this series, we've been encouraged to be people that are pursuing holy living. One commentator said that Paul and Titus and Timothy, they wrote this letter in order to encourage the Thessalonians and instruct them in holy living. And then specifically, as we've gone through, we've learned that we're to be people constantly seeking to love one another, that we're to flee the ways of the world, sexual immorality and all that comes with it, that we are to be a people constantly living in light of God's, Jesus' returning. That's to be constantly something that we anticipate and we are ready for. We're to be an always rejoicing people, a loving people, a thanksgiving type of people, a praying people. That's who we're supposed to be. So now as we close this letter, can I just tell you that a fear that I have for you as one of your pastors. See, my fear when we close letters like this or even when we read statements like these from Paul where he just rolls through these staccato commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, my fear is that you will do what I am so often tempted to do, which is to think at the end of this series and at the end of this message, all right, I'm just going to go get it done. I've been given my marching orders. This is what I'm supposed to do. So now I am going to grip my teeth. I am going to go out there. I'm going to flex my spiritual muscles as much as possible. And I am going to go make it happen. That's the way we approach obedience so often. You know, when we think about being a people, living according to God's will, living in alignment with the holy life that he has called us to, when we think about being people of hope and we approach that as if it's something that we have to grit our teeth and make happen, today I will be more hopeful. I am convinced, in fact, I'm assured that it won't take long before we are more hopeless. See, Paul is not calling us to try harder. Trying harder is not the response that we long for, that Paul longs for, that God intends for us in response to what he has said in these pages. Trying harder to be holy is not the way forward. 
So often when we do that, we start to just try and try and try and we become very fatigued at the end of the day and then we begin to fail and we get miserable and we get despondent and we say, thank goodness that God forgives me. And so often that's the way that we translate that word grace. That's the way we think of his grace. We think of grace as forgiveness. And church, I am so thankful for God's forgiveness. We do fail. We will always fail. And we have a forgiving God. He is quick to forgive. And because we are people who live in light of the cross, we have been forgiven past, present, future. The debt has been taken care of. Jesus paid it all. We don't have to worry about that. But I do ask as we consider this verse, verse 28, when Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, do you think he's talking about forgiveness? Is he saying the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you? There is a word in Greek for forgiveness, and this one isn't it. This word is grace, and as we close, I just want to give you a new definition of grace, or maybe a different definition of grace, because I want to encourage you to think bigger about grace. God's grace is so astounding. So try this definition of grace on for size. Here's what grace is. Grace is God acting in your very life to bring about that which you cannot bring about on your own. Grace is God's action right in the midst of your life to bring about what you, by direct effort, can never bring about. It's him acting in your life. Can you forgive yourself? Absolutely not. That is a testimony. That is a way that God manifests his grace to us. He forgives us. But what can we do without God's grace? Answer, nothing, nothing. God's grace is him acting right in the midst of the details of our life to bring about that which we cannot bring about on our own. The life he has called us to is a life that we cannot live apart from his grace. And as we seek him, as we bring the entirety of our life to him, he is faithful to produce in us change that only he can bring about and outcomes that are only able to be explained because his power, his grace, his presence has done something magnificent. God's grace forgives. It deals with sin. But God's grace also empowers. God's grace enables us to live the holy life that he has called us to. God's forgiving grace. Praise God for that. God's empowering, enabling, transforming grace. Boy, praise God for that. So as we go, what I long for is that as we think about this desire to be holy, it's a good thing. But let us not be people that respond to that desire saying, I am going to try harder to be holy. No, that's not the way forward. If we apply any effort in our life as we leave today, let it be simply to strive to run to our God, to cling to his grace, 
to seek to know him more, that we would seek to see his grace, his action in our life, wherever we are, that we'd be asking him to empower us by his grace to walk according to his ways and to live the life that he wills for us. A life that we will never be able to live if we are purely relying on human energy. No, we need God's very power. We need his grace. So let us endeavor. Let us endeavor as we close this book and as we start to look towards 2 Thessalonians, let us endeavor to run, to strive, not after trying to force our way into obedience, but to strive to cling to God's grace all the more every day that we'd be a people looking for his action in our life, that we would, in response to our longing to be holy people, longing to be prepared people, that we would cling to his very grace. And in clinging to him, we would find ourselves transformed because he will do it. He is faithful. So as we close, will you join me as we pray the same prayer that Paul prays. We pray, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn to you. And we are so grateful for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you. We name you as king and we thank you. We thank you for your cross that you have done that which we could never do for ourselves. We are testaments to your grace, to your goodness. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us, that instructs us, and we want to be attentive to it. Father, as we go, may we be people marked by your grace, aware of your action in our life, wherever we are, and may we cling to you and your grace that you might empower us to live the life you have called us to. And so as we close, we do pray, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us in all that we do. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.